I secured them an audition at Decker on New Year's Day 1962. What a day to pick for a major audition. We blasted off, to be quite honest, about 14, 15 numbers, uh, one or two takes. We virtually recorded our cavern stage show, you know, with a few omissions of repetitive kind of, you know, if you do Johnny Be Good, you don't do old Carol, you know, on a record, right? What I actually saw on stage and what happened in studio as regards the choice of material wasn't the same band. We did all those numbers, terrified and nervous, so you can hear it on that album, you know, it just starts off terrified and gradually settled down. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Taros. The Beatles. Naked. They were really strange choices. I mean, I may have interpreted it wrongly, but my take on auditions at that time was you let the people do what they want to do because that's what they think represents them in the best possible light. I mean, as it transpired, it wasn't the case. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I need Of the world belongs to me. To me, to me, to me. Hey, nights when you're asleep, 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 asleep. Into your tent, I'll creep with me boots on, kicking up a dust. Long distance information, give me Memphis, Tennessee. Help me find the party, trying to get in touch with me. She could not leave her number, but I know who placed the call. Cause my uncle took the message and he wrote it on the wall. Three cool cats. Three cool cats. Parked on a corner in a beat-up car. Dividing up a nickel candy bar. Talking all about how sharp they are, these Everything you say and do 
So that was a medley of the recordings that the Beatles covered at their Decca audition on the 1st of January 1962. And we'll be getting into those a bit more later. But for now, the story really starts on the 13th of December 1961, when Mike Smith, taking orders from Dick Rowe at Decca, went to see the Beatles at the Cavern. The Beatles were tremendous. Not so much my own reaction, but the crowd's reaction was incredible. So Mike Smith basically arrived in Liverpool. Brian took him out to dinner and and then Mike saw the second show, the Beatles' second show at the Cavern on that date and was suitably impressed to basically then set up what's always referred to as an audition. But in fact, its proper title at Decca was a commercial test. And it was seen as somewhat of a sort of foregone conclusion that the Beatles would get a recording contract on the strength of this. You know, just put down some tracks, let Dick Rowe make the final decision. So what happens? New Year's Eve, the Beatles, with Neil at the wheel of their van, drive down to London. It's a 200-mile trip, which should have taken, you know, just a few hours but Neil got lost in Wolverhampton, which is in the Midlands region of England. I remember it well. He was actually having to drive through snow blizzards, ice and dense fog. So it ended up taking them 11 hours to reach their destination, which was the Royal Hotel. I'm sure it wasn't quite as royal as it sounds, but the Royal Hotel Brian put them up in, in central London. 
And then they went with tradition for New Year's Eve at midnight. They were in Trafalgar Square in the fountains and people celebrate. Apparently that year, because of the cold, it was the smallest New Year's Eve crowd in Trafalgar Square for 40 years. I'm sure the Beatles made up for that with their raucous activity. So that was New Year's Eve for them. They crash at the hotel and early the next morning they're at Decca and they immediately feel slighted because thanks to the commissionaire at the main entrance, according to Paul, we unloaded our gear from the van and went in the back door at Decca, the tradesman's entrance. We never went through the front. So, you know, that was one kind of full start for them. They go into Studio 2. This is Decca's studio on Broadhurst Gardens in West Hampstead, northwest London. And because their gear is so beaten up, they end up plugging into the in-house amps. And Pete Best is also slightly separate from the group, both symbolically and in reality, because he's put behind isolation screens. Yeah. And they then feel slighted again because the session's supposed to start at 10 a.m. and Mike Smith is late. He's basically hung over from the night before. He's also bruised and cut up on the face from a car crash he'd been in three days earlier. And Brian is pretty much fuming over this because he's all about punctuality, Brian, and he doesn't like it. But still, they basically start running through the songs while the engineer, Mike Savage, is most like doing his sound balances. And then they go for it. Yeah. Basically, it's split into two. They record before lunch, take an hour-long break for lunch, and then resume. And it's kind of all over by most likely mid-afternoon. But that in itself is unusual because normally for a commercial test, artists would be required to record between two and five songs. And the Beatles end up recording 15. Which is pretty amazing. Yeah. I want to interject for a second to say something about the tradesman's entrance. Have you ever been up to the Decca Studios in West Hampstead? Well, it's now the home of the National Opera, yes. Yeah, but the building is, the facade from what I understand is unchanged. Yeah. And the, the studio they recorded in is sort of towards the front of the street, but down a level and almost what we would call the basement level. Right. Yeah, I used to eat in a Tex-Mex restaurant across the street. Oh, <laughs> well, you know all the hot spots in London, Oh, absolutely, don't you? of course. I'll tell you, a Mexican restaurant in West Hampstead, that's all you have to hear, folks. A Tex-Mex restaurant. Even worse. Which is why when I came to the States, I was baffled why Mexican restaurants didn't serve potato skins. I, I, <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yes, well, anyway, moving on from that, my larger point was that it's a pretty narrow street, and if you were going to go through the front entrance. You'd have to go through the front entrance and down some kind of staircase to get into the studio. So I I, I think Paul maybe, just because he never ever was in that building ever again, was maybe slighted for some reason. But I think that was probably the fastest way to get equipment in and out on the level you needed to get in and out on. So it right. seems interesting that he would be insulted by that. Yeah. So I would say it's a kind of safe assumption that the reason they ended up doing 15 songs is because maybe there was an idea on Decca's part that if they do sign the Beatles, they've got something in the can. They maybe will be able to take a couple of the tracks for their first single. That marks them out as different right from the start. Maybe also Mike Smith liked what he was hearing or didn't like what he was hearing and said, give us another one. Yeah. But anyway, that is the sort of context for this show, which is, you know, to take a look at not only 
the session itself, but also the aftermath in terms of the bootlegging, how the tape got out. And there's a pretty interesting cloak and dagger story that you're going to tell about that, isn't there? I am indeed. Yes. So let's get into the choice of tracks, first of all, because, you know, it's often been alleged that they listened to Brian and ended up doing this kind of hodgepodge of songs, novelty numbers, rock, ballads. And, uh, you know, this was the big mistake. It actually didn't play out that way at all. As John put it, we virtually recorded our Cavern stage show. And what they ended up with were some rock songs, some harmony ballads, some supposedly humorous novelty numbers, three rearranged contemporary chart hits, which are Take Good Care of My Baby by Bobby V, Peggy Lee's version of Till There Was You, and Dinah Washington's September in the Rain. And then, and this is where Brian almost certainly got involved, they also included three Lennon-McCartney originals. That is not something they had been doing as part of their set, but this is now Brian pushing them as songwriters. Which I think is one of the most interesting parts of the tape, to tell you the truth. Why? Where they were placed, as we'll talk later on about the order that these songs were recorded in. You know, we forget oftentimes that the Beatles reinvented the business. The idea of a pop group writing their own material was pretty novel. I mean, Dylan did it, but he was a folky. Yeah. So where would you place those in the level of importance? Would you, if that was a real key feature, and it would be the most revolutionary feature of their career as, as their own material, not their covers, it's funny that that wasn't placed at the beginning and then everything was, and, and this is the stuff they do in their stage act. So there was obviously a lack of confidence. As we all know, those three titles are not the strongest in the Beatles canon. Who knows? It, it may have been even an afterthought, right? Maybe it was, OK, we've done a dozen tracks. Hey, we've got something else we want you to hear. Yeah, it could be that, too. It almost feels more like that, because if you were really trying to emphasize it, you wouldn't leave it till the end of the session because the guys might be not playing as well by the end. You know, obviously knocking off 15 songs in a day. Um, that's kind of some work, I think. Yeah. And also interesting in the choice is knowing traditionally what the Beatles song list comprise of. It's interesting that while Paul has seven lead vocals and George has four, John also only has four. And also surprising when we get into it is how nervous John and Paul both sound. They sound restrained to me. I can hear Paul's voice wobbling until there was you, which John said his voice was so high on it, he sounded like a woman. <laughs> that is the weakest, I think, of, of performances of that song. Yeah. I, I have to agree with John, at least in as much as he sounds very nervous in that one. Right. But then, as you said, the running order here. Now, we don't know definitively what that order was. The best forensic evidence we have is the 10-inch reel that it was on. It was 15 inches per second uh, tape, quarter-inch tape with Dolby A encoded on it. So we know it was not the actual master tape. It was a copy that Joe bought. And the running order on that tape was Money, Sheik of Araby, Memphis, Tennessee, Three Cool Cats, Sure to Fall, September in the Rain, Take Good Care of My Baby, Till There Was You, Cry and Wait and Hopin', To Know Him Is to Love Him, Besame Mucho, Sechen, Like Dreamers Do, Hello, Little Girl, and Love of the Loved. Interestingly, 
bucking current trends. There are no instrumentals and no twist numbers because that was a big thing back then, right? Everyone was doing some sort of twist number and no twist numbers there. They're really sticking to largely their Cavern playlist. Didn't uh, Pete perform one of the twist songs as his... Um... Pinwheel twist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe that was also a way of, you know, keeping Pete out of <laughs> the way of the microphone. Um, <laughs> Pete had his own problems, didn't he? Mike Savage later said, I thought Pete Best was very average and didn't keep good time. You could pick up a better drummer in any pub in London. If you've got a quarter of a group being very average, that isn't good. The drummer should be the rock. And if the rock isn't good, then you start thinking, no. If Decca was going to sign the Beatles, we wouldn't have used Pete Best on the records. I'm sure that this was the beginning of the end for Pete. I'm yeah. sure the I'm sure the recording it wasn't lost on the guys. I'm sure they heard a playback of it at least. They certainly didn't hear it again until you know a decade later or more. I find it interesting in the original um, composition, the original tape that I I gave to you, Richard, that there's as the gaps between songs I've left exactly as it was on the master tape, which sometimes that's up to 20 seconds between songs, which I thought was fascinating. And I wonder if that was just how they were done in the studio. Like they waited 20 seconds and, okay, go again. Really no idea. But it's leader tape, isn't it? Because the room sound disappears between tracks and, and there's just like complete silence. So that's just a choice on the part of the engineer at Decca. Yeah. Giving enough time for Dick Rowe to absorb what he was hearing. And yeah, probably. You know, I mean, certainly on the thing that Joe got, it wasn't leader tape. You know, it was obviously just on one contiguous reel. There was no edits in the reel or anything like that. Right. Obviously, Richard, what muddies the water a little bit on this is that another source of the Decca tape exists, and it was recently auctioned off, what's known as the Epstein reel. It's actually like half of the Decca audition, so I think he had two seven-inch reels that were copied at some point. Theoretically, this is the reel that was taken around to have acetates made, which would eventually be played for George Martin. And there is a couple of sonic differences and content differences between the Joe Pope reel, let's call it, and the Brian Epstein. Well, reel. three of them, as far as I know. Um, the first track that we're going to play, actually, Money, on the Decker audition as bootlegged, it literally sounds as if the machine is being switched on as they start to record. Oh, yeah. A little, a little, what I used to call a squelch. And there's a couple of reasons that may be there. Now, the great thing about the Epstein tape is it proves that the song had a clean beginning. That wasn't a sleepy engineer on New Year's Day just turning on the tape in time when the Beatles started to play, which is what I had suspected. Uh, on the Epstein reel, it's, it's completely clean, clean beginning. Yeah, so that's one thing. Another one is Three Cool Cats. There's an extra bass note at the end. Whoa. Um. <laughs> uh, it's pretty... Don't blink. Yeah, really. And But the one that's really notable for me is September in the Rain... At the end, when Paul is just singing the title line as a refrain, he sings it one more time. And it's clearly a different line. It's not something that's just been copied and pasted in. So that's kind of interesting why that even got edited out in the first place. It is. Joe Pope bought a tape from a sort of nefarious source we're going to talk about later on. There was a very distinct practice in the collecting communities and stuff in those days, which was a way to mark whatever you were trading or selling very subtly so that in case 
you made a deal with somebody and the deal was it doesn't get traded around or whatever, that you had a way of tracking it. So that little squelch at the beginning of money and that edited line out of September in the Rain may have been the guy selling the tape, his way of marking what he sold to Joe Pope. Right. That's the only explanation I can think of because it is, it's a very clever edit, that September in the Rain. It's very subtle. Okay, so let's get into the actual recordings. The first one, as far as we know, Money, That's What I Want, which is obviously an R&B song written by Tamla founder Berry Gordy and Janie Bradford, which was the first hit record for Gordy's Motown label. And here are the Beatles right up front, starting off pushing this music that really was largely unheard in Britain at that time. Surprisingly restrained version. One that you'd think, well, it's going to start off in sort of rip-roaring fashion. Anything but, actually. John just sounds so muted. And this kind of really sets the tone for the rest of the session. He sounds muted. He sounds nervous. And the other thing that's funny about this is it sounds thin compared to how the Beatles normally sound doing that song. And the other thing that's funny about it is it sounds fast. Like, it's almost like the nerves are just, yeah. you know, coming down with the tension of the vampire's fangs on his neck as he's trying to sing this thing and just constraining him. That's an interesting point, actually, Eric, because 
it's not something I've heard about before, but if you think about it, if they were reproducing their cavern set largely, and they're in that kind of mind frame, then maybe that's why there was that tempo. Although, if that was the case, then it would be raucous as well, uh, you know, as it would have been at the cavern, one would imagine. But the cavern had different acoustics, and from eyewitnesses, I remember speaking to Billy J. Kramer about this actually one time, and he said, you had to see the Beatles at the cavern with Pete, which surprised me. And he said, you know, Pete's heavy on the toms style of play. It reverberated through the place. He said, you actually felt it in your body, in the middle of your body. And I think when they're in this sterile environment, they're not getting that, that curved ceiling, the feedback. No atom beat. No atom beat at all. So I, I'm sure that threw them off too. It's like, oh my God, we're in a laboratory. Yeah, because there's just no guts to the performance, right? And uh, it's just so weird of all the times that they kind of clam up like this. It's just not something you would expect, but there it is. So next up is the Sheik of Araby. <laughs> straight into the novelty numbers. So we've done a rock number, and now it's straight into novelty. Originally written in 1921 by Harry B. Smith and Francis Wheeler, with music by Ted Snyder. And it was basically a song referencing Rudolph Valentino in the feature film The Shake. But the Beatles chose to cover a version actually by Joe Brown. Um, you know, they'd seen Joe Brown on TV and he'd performed the Sheik of Araby. And so that was the initial inspiration for them doing it on stage. What do you think of it as a choice of song for their commercial test? I don't think that's one I would have out of their repertoire. I mean, it's great now because it's such an oddball and we get to hear it. And the th sort of thin recording sound overall kind of works with a wacky song from the 20s. George sounds like he's 15 years old singing it. I mean, I know he is still a, a teenager. Well, th that's the thing. As I said before, George is the one 
who sounds confident, which is, yeah. you know, I mean, that tells you something right there, okay? And in Anthology, he talks about how he always knew that they would make it. It was just when. He had that confidence. And it's really interesting that you've got the older Lennon-McCartney, the ones who kind of dominate in that group. And here's George as the, the young upstart who's basically showing them a thing or two. And I think George's songs overall are probably the best on the tape, at least my favorites. Although The Sheik of Araby, it's very clipped, his vocal performance, right? There's, he doesn't sort of sustain notes or anything. He just sort of chucks it yeah, out Yeah, but there. it's sort of cute. I mean, it's like it sounds like a kid singing a kid's song. And I think that he's, he certainly sounds a little bit older on the other numbers. But he, it, it seems like they left the novelty stuff to George, right? It was, we'll talk about it in a minute or so. A great thing I associate with that recording is, I think it was in 2011, was actually the last time I went to see a Paul McCartney concert. This was at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And beforehand, the stadium PA, while they were doing the sound check, they were broadcasting this music that was going all over Wrigleyville which is the neighborhood there in Chicago. This was something that Paul had before every show for the tour. But yeah. what I'll never forget is being outside the stadium, down the street, and hearing the Sheik of Araby. You know, George singing the Sheik of Araby. And I'm thinking here in 2011, my God, if they'd have only known in 1962. I would never have believed it. I know. This is going to be heard on the other side of the Atlantic 50 years later. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. So uh, what do you think of The Sheik? It's okay. You know, it's fun. It's The Beatles, so I associate it with that. But I think it was a real mistake for the audition, personally. I, I get that they were trying to show themselves as all-rounders, but what are they really going for? You know, I mean, are they going for a recording contract as rock artists or as a general entertainment outfit? I don't think it was the latter. And so why even show that kind of quote-unquote versatility? Just stick to the rock. It may have been, may have been Brian's. You know, they, they tended to blame those things on Brian. So Yeah, but, uh, Brian. but as John said, that was their stage set. So I think they were just picking from their stage set. And the evidence seems to be that Brian's only incursion, if you like, was to suggest the Lennon-McCartney originals. So I don't think it's fair to be blaming Brian, certainly with no evidence of it. So we move on to song number three and Memphis, Tennessee. Long distance information, give me Memphis, Tennessee. Try to find the party, trying to get in touch with me. She would not leave her number, but I know who placed the call. Small coat took the message and he wrote it on the wall. Help me, information more than that I cannot have. Only that I miss her and all the fun we had. We will pull apart because her ma would not agree. Help me get in touch with her in Memphis, Tennessee. Last time that I saw Marie, she was waving me goodbye With hurry home drops on her cheek, trittle from her eye Marie is only six years old, information please Help me get in touch with her in Memphis, 
time that I saw Marie, she was waving me goodbye. With hurry, home drops on her cheek, trickle from her eye. Marie is only six years old. Information, please. Help me get in touch with her in Memphis, Tennessee. Chuck Berry and John, of course, on the lead here. But again, not that that is a rocking record to start with particularly, but it's so sterile, this version. It's once again, he sounds nervous. He really does sound like he's not putting the oomph into it that he would for his hero, Chuck Berry, or for an Elvis. Just still sounds a little nervous. He also actually sounds as if he could be hung over, but he must have been hung over enough times in his life up until then to be able to still deliver a full-on performance immediately afterwards so that can't be the reason but as you say nerves but just unusual that someone with his character and as the leader you know self-appointed leader of the group that he would be that restrained i think the normal hungover voice would be lower and more growly than kind of high-pitched and nervous yeah you know just my opinion so i would have expected a bit more soul in it if he was hungover as opposed to uh eh, you know it's kind of shrill but i mean i mean maybe we're listen when you first heard this stuff it was such a mind blow back in 1977 when i started getting these singles and we'll talk about that in a minute how it came out you didn't care you just knew it was completely different what's interesting about it now is it doesn't have the beatles live sound and it doesn't have the bbc sound it has its own sonic fingerprint which makes it Very, very interesting to listen to. Certainly not a favourite, though. No, absolutely not. Next up, another novelty number, Three Cool Cats. 1958 recording by The Coasters, written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who'd already done their thing for Elvis. Three Cool Cats Three Cool Cats On the corner in a beat-up car Splitting up a lip Talking all about how sharp they are Three cool cats Three cool chicks Walking down the street Swinging her hips Splitting up a bag of potato chips And three cool cats do three big flips for Three cool chicks Yeah, three cool chicks well, I bought the first cool cat He said, man, look at that Man, do you see what I see? Well, I want that middle chick I want that little chick Hey, man, she have one chick for me Well, three cool chicks Three cool chicks Well, they look like angels from up above And three cool cats really fell in love But three cool chicks made three fools out Three cool cats Three cool cats Well, I popped that first cool cat He said, man, look at that Man, do you see what I see? Well, now I want that middle chick Three 
girls from up above I think cool cats really fell in love I think cool chicks made three fools up It's three cool cats Three cool cats Three cool cats Of the novelty numbers, I most likely like this the most. Oh, me too. Once again, it's George on lead vocal with plenty of assistance from John and Paul. And they're adding in their comments, which in the cavern, there most likely would have been some audience participation. You see and people calling out and whistling, things like that. Of course, there's none of that here. So that is something that it would have lost right there in the recording in that basement studio. But still, I think it does work. And actually, I think it's okay for the audition because it was pretty well known as a pop number. Well, there's another dimension to this for me. This, Three Cool Cats, backed up with Hello Little Girl, was the first of the Decagon singles to be released. And I will never get over getting this thing in the mail from uh, Strawberry Fields magazine because that was the only way you could get this. They were never going to be sold in stores. You had to be a subscriber to Joe Pope's magazine. And whenever, at the exorbitant price, by the way, of $4 per single. Now, that doesn't sound like much now, but in 1977, uh, $4, the equivalent of that today in buying power, is almost $18. Right. So if you can imagine, you're spending 18 bucks for this pig in a poke, and uh, or pig in a pope, and what shows up in the mail this beautiful picture sleeve. On one side, there was a picture of the Beatles at that charity event at Alan Livingston's mother-in-law's house on one side. And on the Hello Little Girl side, you had a picture from Savile Theater when they were doing the Hello Goodbye promo film. And you put it on and it was mind-blowing. I mean, you're like, what the hell is this? It sounded perfect. You could tell it was the Beatles. You could tell it was George immediately, but it was like, we'd never, ever heard them. And you know that, and then to have the thrill of a Lennon and McCartney song, "Love of the Loved," that would I'd never heard the Beatles sing, I, so I can't separate that experience uh, from from looking at it now. So it's kind of my favorite couple of songs because I I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, and that was the lead of. Sure to fall in love with you, Carl Perkins' number from '55. Interesting that George doesn't take the lead on this. Instead, it's Paul. And Paul goes full bore hillbilly.
I've never heard him sound so American. It's a problem for me. It it, it kind of works though. I I like it. You know, it's um well Mick Jagger carved a whole career out of what Bo Bells to the Bayou, right? So I mean, yeah, I agree. But you know, this is just like. So over the top, his accent here, Paul. It is over the top, but it's fun. I mean, it, it, when I think about it, soul, Amita, you know, it's like, uh, I love it. I mean, it's almost like a novelty. Oh, I didn't know Elvis did it. Uh, w- w- <laughs> that's Lancashire. Um, I don't know. It's okay. You know, again, we have to put ourselves in the context of the times. This is January 1962 in the UK. Lots of covers of American songs in the charts, okay, you know, by British artists, plus the American originals. But again, short of fall, I don't know. You know, again, what are they trying to show Decca here with that? They're trying to show Decca that, you know, uh, country music is big in Liverpool. They're from Liverpool. I think country music was doing well in the UK in general in that time period, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, people like Jim Reeves and Patsy Cline and, you know, that stuff was seen as American music. Yeah, I'm, I, but I'm, I'm not sure that that would have been my choice for this audition, that particular song. It's a bit of a maudling ballad for me. I don't know. I don't know that it really suits the Beatles that well. At least there's no references to dead dogs or pickup trucks. True. Or the house burning down or the oh, wife yeah. leaving. You got it. So the next song is a Dinah Washington tune from 1961 called September in the Rain. And it's like the most intriguing choice to me on this particular tape. One, two, three, hey! The leaves of brown came tumbling down, remember? Yeah, in September, in a rain. The sun went out just like a dying ember. much prefer it to Shore to Fall. Oh, yeah. I think it actually is an intriguing number, as you say, and uh, I do think it suits Paul vocally. It's interesting, too, that the Beatles are showing with this, they're not afraid to do a woman's song. You know, that, that's one of the interesting things about the Beatles, 
you know, there's so many interesting things, but during the BBC sessions when John would do Anne Margaret's hit, I Just Don't Understand, that must have been unusual, especially yeah. for macho guys from Liverpool. You know, that, that must have been kind of daring to say, yeah, I'm going I'm to sing a song that was hit by a chick. What are you going to do about it? You know, something about that I like. So that was part of the intrigue. And then just that it's a song that's sort of forgotten to time. Certainly, I never heard any other rock and roll versions of this. Right. I love I love it. It was a real cool song to do and I I like the performance. This is probably once again it's in the favorite songs that I listen to um when I listen to the Decca audition tape. Yeah, as I said, I think it does work. I think Paul handles it well. And remember once again Richard, as you said earlier, the other interesting thing about September in the Rain is that this is the song that has that that little extra bit, one other refrain of September in the Rain that for whatever reason the guy that sold the tape to Joe Pope edited out. And whether it was to mark the tape as as he did with money at the beginning, who knows? But it's missing from the Joe Pope one a whopping four seconds. An extra September in the Rain. Unfortunately, I did not gain permission to play the extra four-second version of September in the Rain. From Decca? Uh, well, I gave up on them. They passed already, so they had nothing to do with this. EMI? Apple? No, I had to talk to... A mystery collector. The mystery collector. Somebody who uh, helped me out with uh, getting a, a copy of that. Sometimes when people spend obscene amounts of money on things at an auction, one wants to try to respect that process sometimes. And, and this is a case where we have to do that, unfortunately. My only problem with September in the Rain? That beginning by Paul. That shooby-dooby-doo. It's like... What the hell? Well, he was, you know, Frank Sinatra again, was Again, huge... it might have worked at the cavern, right? It might have worked with the audiences, getting everyone involved. But it, it just sounds dead corny, like that in that dry setting. I think he was channeling a, a future show in Vegas. Now, up next, probably my favourite cut from the session. Take Good Care of My Baby, Bobby V song. We agree. Largely because I like the song. I have to say it's M.O.R. pop, but I think it's brilliant M.O.R. pop. It had been a number one on both sides of the Atlantic only recently. And so this is one of the contemporary numbers they're covering. And George takes the lead on it, does a confident job. Again, it's a pretty clipped vocal. I think it would have been a richer vocal had it been John or Paul doing it. But this is what we've got. And it is, it's a young and innocent George on that. And, and that in itself is quite beautiful. My tears are falling. Cause you've taken her away And though it really hurts me so There's something that I gotta say Take good care of my baby Please don't ever make her blue Just tell her that you love her Make sure you're thinking of her in everything you say and do Take good care of my baby Now don't you ever make her cry Just let your love surround her Paint rainbow all around her Don't let her see you cloudy sky Once upon a time That little girl if I had been too, I hope she'd never be with you So take good care of my baby Be just as kind as you can be And if 
you should discover that you don't really love her, just send my baby back home to me. Take care of my baby, be just as kind as you can be. That you don't really love her Just send my baby back home to me Take good care of my baby Take good care of my baby Take good care of my baby Considering how nervous John sounded in the first couple of cuts and Paul's kind of bolstering himself, he, I almost feel like during September in the Rain, he was like trying to give himself more confidence. I, I think it, this was the right choice. George did a great job on it. I love it. It's, it's my favorite song from the sessions. Yeah, the only thing is, obviously, it's got some, again, very thin sounds and the guitar on it is so thin. Um, also, their clipped way of singing, take good care of my baby. Uh, I don't know, you know, I'd have liked something a bit more body to the performance there. It, it's a thin performance, but it is charming nonetheless. I think you wouldn't have liked it if they tried to do the Bobby V. Baby. You know, I think... Uh, I you think, never know. A bit buddy holly I think that might have been a bit too much, like like when Paul tries to do country and western. Well, what is a bit too much is his performance next of Till There Was You. This is the one where he really does sound nervous. And also Pete's drumming is completely off. There were bells on a hill But I never heard them ringing No, I never heard them at all Till there was you There were birds in the sky but I never saw them winging no I never saw them at all till there was you and there was music and wonderful roses they'd send me in sweet fragrant meadows of dawn and you there was love all around But I never heard it singing No, I never heard it at all Till there was you I never heard it singing 
No, I never heard it at all till I was you. is the nadir shall we say right yeah interesting right because it it wouldn't be the nadir of their royal variety performance you know just under two years later i would say for my money that was the best time they ever performed it live that is as perfect a rendition as ever is that royal variety one and and it's so interesting that within that amount of time difference so we're here on new year's day 62 by november of 63 under much more nerve-wracking conditions, Paul nails it, as do all of them. Yeah, and he looks nervous in that Royal Variety performance, right? You can see the nerves, and you can hear a slight wobble in the voice there, but he does it, he nails it. Whereas here, as you said, it's not in front of cameras or, you know, major audiences, but, yeah, it was that red light went on. Apparently, he'd asked Neil if they could do something about stopping the red light going on when they were tracking because it was making him nervous, and Neil came back and said, no, they can't do anything about that. There's a reason they have him. Yeah. So there's really not much else to say, unfortunately, about that song. I mean, obviously, it's the right choice. They beetled it up quite a bit by the time the rest of the world really gets to associate it with them. But eh, not much. I think the next was a lot more successful. Yeah, Crying, Waiting, Hoping, that's another one from this session that I do really like. Buddy Holly song was released in 59 as the B-side to Peggy Sue Got Married Yeah, after Buddy died. But the Beatles glommed onto this one, and again, George is most prominent on it. But a great job of harmonising on there, and I think it's got great energy. Crying, crying, waiting, waiting, hoping I just can't seem to get you off my mind uh, uh. Crying, crying, waiting, waiting, hoping, hoping You come back, you're the one I love I think about you all the time Crying, crying, do, do, do The tears keep on falling all night long the waiting, waiting Seems so useless, I know it's wrong People cry, cry, waiting, waiting, hoping, hoping you come back, baby, someday soon Things will change and you'll be mine Crying, 
So interesting, at least two of my favorite songs, and actually three of my favorite songs from the tape are all George songs. Three of the four. Yeah, well, yeah, because he's the one singing with confidence. There's nothing like foreshadowment, and their very first demonstration tape for a record company, John decides to cover To Know Him Is To Love Him, which of course was written by Phil Spector, recorded by the Teddy Bears, and had that macabre storyline of, uh, it was a phrase that was written on Phil's father's tombstone. Yeah, his father took his own life. To know, know, know her is to love, love, love her. Just to see a smile makes my life worthwhile. It's just to know, know, know her is to love, love, love her. And I do, and I do, and I do. John does on the tape. It is, but it's not the best rendition he gives of To Know Her Is To Love Her. It does no. it better for the BBC. Yes. But I agree, it's most likely his best moment here during this audition. When we reconstructed the cavern footage that was shot, you know, for uh, Know the North, 
in August of 62. That is one of the songs they're performing in the B-roll. Right. What suffers here is the production choices. You had mentioned earlier about uh, the sound engineer uh, you know, getting the balances right. Well, I th- I'm not so sure he ever did get the balances right because <laughs> it sounds so thin, all things considered. I yeah. don't know why that is. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, they've got sparse instrumentation, obviously. There's no overdubbing. But think of how they sounded in other situations where they have no overdubbing. Uh, what always comes to mind is the Swedish radio broadcast, which they just sound ferocious. They sound The sound is thick and dense and rock and roll, and there's not a hint of of uh, any nervousness of anything, and it sounds fantastic. I agree with you. The sound they get is a very clinical sound. It's it's a commercial test, but yeah, one does wonder if they were thinking of any of those possibly for commercial release. It would need quite a bit of post-production. I was just going to say our friend the compressors, I suppose, would have got involved in that. Right, right. The other thing to consider is that Mike Smith wasn't producing them here. You know, he just had them performing their numbers, but he wasn't coaching them, trying to get a performance out of them. Yeah, there's no record or anything I've ever heard of to indicate that they did multiple takes of anything, that it was just like, okay, do a song, do a song, do a song. Yeah, we'll never know, will we? I don't know if Mike Smith commented on that as to whether they, you know, scrubbed any other takes, but never heard of that. No. So next up, we have Besame Mucho, which, again, something of a novelty number, although done in rock fashion, because this was a 1940 composition by a Mexican by the name of Consuelo Velasquez, first mm. recorded by Emilio Tuero. And the title translates, by the way, as Kiss Me A Lot. Well, Kiss Me Much, if we want to get, you know, I, it means a lot, but it's mucho is much. Well, that means a lot, Eric, yes. But oh, it means a lot. It means a lot to me too, Richard. You yeah. never say such sweet nothings. That's very nice. Thank you. Besame Mucho, the version that the Beatles took up on was that by the Coasters. Cha-cha, boom! Besame, besame mucho. Each time I give you a kiss, I hear music divine. Oh, who ever 
a dog was oh dearest one if you should leave me then each little dream will take wings and my life would be through so It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because they do it at the Decca audition. They do it again at their first EMI recording session. It's on tape, you know, of them at the Star Club in Hamburg. And right at the end there, the Get Back sessions, Paul again gets it out of his system, albeit in a kind of pseudo-operatic voice, which possibly is what he'd always fancied doing. Everybody loves that version, and I, I remember it was a Tony Tyler or Roy Carr saying, you know, why didn't they put that on the album? I kind of agree. That that would have added a little bit of needed, you know, levity to the... Uh, really? Let it you be. think so? Oh, yeah. I mean, better than Dig It or some depressing thing like that, which I never really yeah. cared for. But it's, it's kind of another, some other guy, isn't it? It's this staple of their live set at least for a time, that they perform in various settings and yet never a commercial release. Yeah, I wonder why. I guess they must have figured it worked in a live setting. It's sort of Paul singing to his girls in the audience and that maybe, it, yeah, maybe, and maybe it was listening back to this. They did try it at EMI and they passed over it. So maybe they just figured it works in the live setting, but we're kind of past it now and it's kind of goofy and we're serious and, yeah. you know. I mean, it's okay, but, you know, the cha-cha-boom and all that stuff. Uh, that might be what did it, the cha-cha-boom. <laughs> it's the cha-cha-boom that did it. You heard it here first, folks. Searching, another coaster's number comes up next. A real cavern favourite. <laughs> Cause I'm searching
Uh, now, this is one we used to do at the cavern with the Beatles, and there was two girls called Chris and Val, and they used to sing, say, Sing searching, Paul. <laughs> sing searching. That used to be the big request from Chris and Val. Sing searching. I think this is a pretty successful performance. Again, it's not their most raucous version of it, but it basically holds up. I think it's one of the better performances. The vocal balance wasn't perfect, but it was a great performance and, and a fun song. Right. The three Lennon McCartney originals, which start with Like Dreamers Do, which was written by Paul largely back in 59. And interestingly, he's since said that he's not fond of the song, that it was a throwaway to him. So... Why put that in here? They did have other numbers to choose by that time. I, I saw a girl in my dreams And so it seems That I will love her or you You are that girl in my dreams And so it seems That I will love crazy about how Paul sings the middle eight section, I, 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 again, dead corny. It does sound like he's feeling his way through a demo. Maybe the I, I, I would have worked better in Besame Mucho, but. <laughs> it's an okay number. And of course, given a real commercial treatment by the Apple Jacks in 1964. I, 
One of my top three performances on the session, Hello Little Girl, which is purportedly one of the first songs ever written by John. I think there's evidence that there were maybe some earlier numbers, but this is certainly one of the earliest. And I think it's got really good energy. I think it's a decent track. And I actually think they could have put this on their first album for EMI. I think they should have. This is a great performance. It's, I think it is actually the best. It's the most beatly of what's to come for me on the session. And I also, as I said before, I have a biased view of this song because it was the first, along with Three Cool Cats, the first song to come out on one of Joe's Decagon singles. And I just couldn't get over the shock of hearing this. You know, it just blew my mind. It still blows my mind. It's, it's a wonderful record. And I think Joe chose it because it probably did to his ears as well. I'm just totally guessing here. But it sounded the most beatly, most recognizable in a collection of songs that in those days, maybe a lot of people were, were thinking, is this really the Beatles? It doesn't sound like them to me. Hello, little girl. Hello, little girl. Hello, little girl. When I see you every day, I say, mm-hmm. hello, little girl. When you're passing on your way, I say, mm-hmm. hello, little girl. When I see you passing by, I cry, mm-hmm. hello, little girl. When I try to catch your eye, I cry, mm-hmm. hello, little girl. Hello. I send you flowers, but you don't oh, care. Oh, oh, oh. You never seem to see me standing oh, there. Oh, oh, oh. I often wonder what you're thinking. Oh, 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 oh. So I hope there'll come a day when you say, mm-hmm, you're my little girl. It's not the first time that it's happened to me. It's been a long, lonely time. And it's so funny, so funny to see that I'm about to lose my mind, my mind. So I hope there'll come a day when you say, mm-hmm, You're my little girl You're my little girl You're my little girl Oh yeah You're my little girl If they did indeed perform the tracks in this order one might assume that by this point they're a little bit more confident this would have been after lunch again you know there was a break they had time to think about what they've been doing and come back. And John does sound more confident on this. 
on definitely on this one. Yeah, this is this is his best performance. Yeah, because you also sort of rated him on to know her is to love her. If anything, I think this is better. I think this is better, and I, I there's something about this though. It's the cumulative effect of the band that is the best. They sound they're really together singing this. Yeah, you see, again, in a live setting, doing To Know Her Is To Love Her with those backing vocals, Nana, Nana, you know, George and Paul, while John is singing the middle eight. Yeah. That most likely did work really well in a live setting. On record, it, again, just sounds a bit heavy-handed and corny. And I think with Hello Little Girl, the backing vocals are much more successful. Hello Little Girl We finish up, again, unusual number of tracks, 15, but we end up with an odd number and a slightly odd song, Love of the Loved, not ever one of my favourites. It's another Paul song um, which would end up being given to Scylla Black as a single produced by George Martin, released in September of 63. And it works for Scylla, that, that arrangement. Do you think so? You see, I don't like it either. I think it's very heavy-handed arrangement by George Martin, unusually. It just doesn't work for me at all. It, I think that that's the best that could be done with the song. It, it sounds to me like, once again, it sounds like a demo to me in this form, and that it sounds finished by altering the tempo a little bit and adding, you know, kind of the glitz and the glamour. To me, it uh, I liked Scylla's version. I thought that was the completion of the song to me. I thought it was the ruination oh, of see, it. Well, <laughs> Not that there was a whole lot to ruin. Well, we can't agree on everything, Richard. The descending chords of the composition give it a kind of downbeat feel, even though it's pretty up-tempo. Somehow it just doesn't work. It's got an uneasy feeling about it for me. There is another version of this floating around as a demo that was recorded at the Cavern, Hmm. and uh, Paul sounds a little more confident on it than he does, you know, he sings it with more authority, maybe is the way I should phrase it. Right. He never got over the nervousness completely on this session. (laughs) 
time I look into your eyes I see that there, there heaven lies And as I look, I see the love of love Someday they'll see that from the start My place has been deep in your heart And in your heart I see love of love I've said it all before I will say it more and more Now that I'm really sure you love me And I know that from today I'll see it in the way That you look at me and say Ah, you love me So let's bring I'll never care Deep in your heart I'll still be there And when I'm there I see the love of the love Oh, I said it all before I will say it more and more Now that I am really sure you love me And I know that from today I'll see it in the way That you look at me and say How oh, you love me So let it ring I'll never care Deep in your heart I'll still be there And when I'm there I see the love of the loved I see the love of the loved I see the love of the love At the end of the session, they would have listened to a playback of what they'd recorded, but they would have done so on the studio floor. They wouldn't have been in the control room doing that. And according to John later, and of course this is with 2020 hindsight, knowing how things played out, but he said we didn't sound natural, which is absolutely right, of course. But still, I think at the end of it, they got a good feeling from Mike Smith that, yeah, it's just a formality now. Guys, you know, I'm just going to provide Dick Rowe with the tape and he'll sign off on it. So they left actually feeling quite confident and they stayed in London for an extra night. Brian treated them to dinner in a Swiss cottage restaurant, Swiss cottage being not that far from Hampstead and St. John's Wood. And so, yeah, they stayed in London a second night before returning to Liverpool amid still atrocious weather. The next day, they had to get back there for a cavern gig. But they went back there feeling like, you know, ready to tell everyone that they were going to be signed by Decca. We know how that played out, this whole thing about guitar groups are on the way out, Mr Epstein. I mean, the Beatles were an unusual setup in that time anyway. There weren't that many guitar groups around. Well, they were on the way out. Yeah, <laughs> on the way out, way in, whatever. We know how that played out. I mean, coming all the way down to London and failing, terrible, yeah. At the time, people were really looking for shadow-style groups. Everyone was on the lookout for the new shadows. So we were a little rough around the edges, so you can't blame the fella for failing us, really. The part that is really interesting to get into for me now is how the two-track mono tape of this session actually saw the light of day and was bootlegged in the 1970s. Well, it is an interesting story. I would have thought that Decca would have wiped the thing as soon as they decided, uh, no, we're not going to sign these guys, so somehow... Well, that would give them something to actually issue, wouldn't it? Well, yes, but I mean, once they made the decision that they weren't going to sign him, you would have thought uh, somehow at that point, Brian gets back involved and gets a copy, unless he got a copy immediately. 
that day to take away with him. I wonder if Decker could have actually released that tape once the Beatles became famous. I wonder if they could have put it out, if there was any way for the Beatles to block it, because we've known of that, haven't we, where artists have switched labels and then the former label decides to kind of get its own back by putting out some tracks, some sometimes some shitty tracks. Well, that was part of the philosophy behind Joe Pope doing his Decagon singles. Was His theory was, well, wait a minute, this is a tape from before the Beatles were signed to EMI, therefore they don't own it, therefore uh, I can put these singles out. And certainly nobody stopped him. He never got any letters to cease and desist or anything. I think it was a gray area. Uh, certainly copyright changed in America in 1972, so we were only a few years into the new copyright rules. Before that, it was people could do whatever the hell they wanted. Yeah, because the first official release, of course, was on Anthology. Yes. Of some of the tracks. But what's interesting is where Joe Pope comes into the story is the guy he bought this from was ostensibly or theoretically an employee of EMI. And it wasn't just the DECA audition tape he bought in 1976. It was also the Abbey Road outtakes that have been float- had been floating around for years, which came out first on a bootleg called Abbey Road Northwest 8. Uh, which was not Joe's, but I'll tell you what about that in a minute. The Mary Hopkin, Paul McCartney, and Donovan tape was part of the same deal. And then the last weird part of it, which was listed to Joe as EMI outtakes, was actually a, t- a tape of a couple of songs that were sent over from the BBC to have lead guitar dubbed into them for the Top Gear show. So all of that was part of a deal to Joe Pope in 1976, But how did he come upon the recordings in the first place? That is a part of the equation I haven't completely figured out. What I can tell you is Joe uh, is the guy that invented the idea of the Beatle convention. He had the first one in Boston in July of 1974. He beat Mark Lapidos and uh, his Fest for Beatles fans. Mark also had one in New York in 1974, but his was like in September or October. And Joe had actually started up here in Boston at the Hotel Bradford in July. He used to call them mystery tours. The third mystery tour was in 1976. And by this point, Joe had always been selling things exclusively through his Strawberry Fields Forever fanzine, which had started in 1971. And he knew a guy in New York called Keith Slechnansky, who ran Revolver Records, and he was like the king of cool record stores in Greenwich Village. And Keith had his fingers into everything. So, for example, Keith found like a warehouse full of the original Beatles programs from all three tours in America. And so Joe used to sell them for 10 bucks a piece through Strawberry Fields. Brand new, never had used, but they were the original ones. And there was records, promos and stuff that Keith would find, and he'd, he'd make a deal with Joe and they would sell them through the magazine. Well, that eventually led, that as- association through Keith, I'm sure it was through Keith, um, that Joe put out a special high-quality pressing on colored vinyl, there were five different colors, of How Do You Do It on one side and the live version of Revolution from the promo film on the other. And this was sold only at the convention, the 1976 Mystery Tour. And I'm pretty sure it sold out. I remember it was four bucks. I remember it felt like a lot of money. But once again, you got that thing home and, oh my God, it's really the Beatles. We're used to bootleg sounding like crap. And this sounded fantastic. And matter of fact, we're going to listen to a needle drop of it right now. What you do to me, I wish I knew 
If I knew how you do it to me, I'd do it to you. How do you do what you do to me? I'm feeling blue. Wish I knew how you do it to me, but I have no clue. A feeling in my heart, ooh la la, like an arrow passing through it. Suppose that you think you're very smart, but won't you tell me how do you do it? How do you do what you do to me? I wish I knew. If I knew how you do it to me, I'd do it to you. So there we're obviously jumping forward a few months from the Decca audition. This is now at EMI. But I get your point that we'd have most likely never heard this had they signed for Decca. But I suppose we wouldn't have heard a whole lot of stuff had they signed for Decca. Well, it's more than that. Somehow EMI came into the possession of the Decca tape. And if it wasn't for the success of Joe selling, how do you do it? He wouldn't have had the confidence to to buy for $2,000 those other aforementioned tapes by this guy who made copies and took them out of EMI and sold them to Joe. $2,000 doesn't sound like a whole lot of money right now. However, the buying power in today's money is 8500 bucks. So he was taking a terrible chance. Nobody knew if this guy was on the level or what. It had to be a cash deal. The transfer of funds and tapes had to occur in kind of an obscure place, but on public transport. So they ended up doing the, the transfer of a suitcase of money, as it were, a briefcase of money and the tapes at uh, Prudential Station on the Green Line in Boston. This is an old uh, kind of, at that time, very seldom used. It could be pretty bleak and lonely at night. And they did it one night. I believe it was the fall of 1976 or may have been the summer. But it was after the convention, after Joe had some money, Another thing you should know about this is Joe was – he really made his money as a professional gambler, high-stakes poker player out in Las Vegas. And he would go out to Vegas for X amount of months, make his money, and then the rest of the year he would spend doing his Beatle projects, which he didn't – you know, he made some money on, but he did that for the love of it. Another of my mentors besides Joe was Jason B. And Jason B. was a very intimidating man, a great knowledgeable rock and roller and Beatle guy co-author of You Really Got Me, The Bible of the Kinks. Anyway, sometimes Joe's poker buddies wouldn't pay up on time, and so Jason was an enforcer because he was pretty scary. So if you needed to get your bill paid for a cut, Jason would make sure the bill got paid. So Jason came along supposedly with a gun and the suitcase and was there just in case some kind of funny business went down. 
I mean, can you imagine this? If the cops had kind of clued in on this, they'd have thought that they were cutting in on a drug deal. Absolutely. And it's, actu- it's actually for the Beatles' Decca tapes. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and of course, the other tapes that went with it. But certainly they knew that the EMI outtakes, the Abbey Road outtakes, were, un- were the property of EMI. So there was some danger involved here, and they chose the right place to do it. And the transfer was made, and I guess everybody was happy. There is a kind of two levels to the story. After the tapes were obtained and how they got out is kind of an interesting tale. So I should tell you what the world has heard all these years was a tape that wasn't transferred properly. All the singles were made from a weird dub of the DECA audition tape. Let me explain. When they got the reel back to Jason's apartment... Because Joe was not technical. He wouldn't have been able to play back a 10-inch reel-to-reel tape. When they got back to Jason's apartment, they discovered the tape was recorded at 15 inches per second, which is a professional format. Jason at that time did not have the ability to play a 15-inch per second tape. So what they did, they played back the tape at three and three quarters. And then they took that, played the three and three quarters tape, (laughs) the dub, and recorded it on another tape. What a cack-handed way of doing something. You've splashed out all this money in this cloak-and-dagger deal, possibly putting your own personal safety on the line, and then you don't go out of your way to do the best possible transfer? They were afraid. The big discovery was all of the tapes were encoded with Dolby A, the first Dolby noise reduction system. So what they were forced to do was to play the tape back at seven and a half. So they're playing the thing at half speed. They're recording it on another deck at three and three quarters speed. And then they take that three and three quarters dub and play that back at seven and a half, speeding it up twice as fast. So people used to talk about it was kind of warbly sound in places. I'm sure that contributed to it partially. Well, whose bright idea was it to put Dolby? Because obviously that wasn't done at source back in 1962. No, it was just the guy making dubs in EMI. Because that's how we knew it wasn't the original one and only Decca audition tape. Because right. it, they, they had no Dolby A in those days. So, so that there was a lot of rumors that Joe had the real, real original. Because in 1983, I was speaking with a, a woman named Ms. Varley at EMI, Abbey Road. And I was interviewing them for a project I was doing. And they, at that time in 1983, had lost the Decca audition tape. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> It had gone missing somewhere. Now, whether they found it again later, I really don't know. Or whether they mastered stuff off the bootlegs, I really don't know for anthology. But I can tell you in 1983, they didn't know where the Decca tape had gone. This guy might have walked out the door with it and made three copies, because I have heard there was another copy of it floating around. But at any rate, they were afraid to go to a place to have it decoded the right way. They EQ'd it so that it sounded pretty good. And that's what those singles were all made from, was that multi-generational tape off of the Decca audition tape. So now, before I talk about the singles and how they came out, years later, a third member of of the friendship of of, uh, Joe and Jason, Johnny V, who was uh, a Who's News guy and a big Beatles guy, but uh, totally a Who guy, he borrowed the master tape and said, you know, now enough time has gone by, we're into the 80s, let me make a proper dub of this thing. So he took it into a studio that had Dolby A, they ran it at 15 inches per second, and he made a 48K DAT. That was state-of-the-art at the time. And I eventually made a 96K copy of the 48K DAT. 
Which is what everyone is hearing today on the show. Yes, and also for certain collectors who know there's a guy out there who – everyone used to have these mythical names, myself included. There's a guy from Australia who calls himself Lord Wraith. Yeah. He, uh, I gave him a copy. You know, after soul-searching, I thought, you know, Joe's been gone a long time. He'd really want people to hear this. So we kind of had a private group of collectors around the world, and I released this to Lord Wraith. And he passed it around for free. He was never somebody to charge for anything. Unfortunately, uh, I stopped doing such things because it en ended up being in Japan and getting bootlegged and people, you know, all that stuff that used to turn me off to collecting years ago. So that's how it kind of got out in its present form. Was it your tape that you provided to Lord Wraith that he then turned into fake stereo? Yes. Right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are kind of interesting, except it's absolutely the fake stereo is just vocals in one channel and instruments in the other. A couple of people have tried it. Lord Wraith did it. There was an, there's another remixer guy, calls himself Paul, with a number after it. He did, I think, a better one. Somebody did a better one. There's like one that's very common, and then there's one that sounds a little better. But I'm very against that kind of thing. It's okay, I suppose, if you're just sort of doing it for your own enjoyment. However, when things like that get out, it really muddies the waters as for a collector. You know, it wasn't meant to be in stereo. It was meant to be mono. And as John used to say, you, you take a heavy record and make it into ice cream. So I, I'm not really into that mm. uh, fake. I mean, it's like kind of interesting to listen to. Maybe we'll play an example on the show, but eh, not really my thing. So in the winter of 1976 into 77, Joe Pope put out... A Christmas record. His, his 1976 Christmas edition of Strawberry Fields Forever magazine was actually a flexi disc, and it came with a letter. And the letter announced, you know, we've been selling stuff over the years here. You know, you could you could get a real Beatles Christmas album, courtesy of you know Keith finding a bunch of them in a warehouse in New Jersey or something, um, for you know decent money. And Joe made this announcement. He's like, "What we're going to offer now is the most incredible thing we've ever done." And you could only get these singles if you were a subscriber to Strawberry Fields Forever magazine. Uh, he was never going to intend to sell them at the convention. Or if you knew someone who was a subscriber, as I did. Yes, because he didn't limit how many copies you could buy. You could buy, if you said, I want four of the latest single, you could. The very first one to come out, and he staggered the releases. The idea was that they were going to come out through 1977 every six weeks. But the first one to come out was Hello Little Girl and Three Cool Cats. Once again, beautifully pressed and pressed on colored vinyl. My Three Cool Cats came out on a beautiful blue vinyl. And here was this label, Decagon, and for promotional use only, mono, not for sale. Right. You know, yeah, all that I stuff. on all that. But beautifully done and shocking in sound quality. Yeah. So the, the second single that was released was Sheik of Araby in September in the Rain. The third one was Love of the Loved and Memphis. Then came Searchin' and Like Dreamers Do. Then came Sure to Fall in Money. Then came Till There Was You Cryin' Waitin' Hopin'. And then the final one to be released was Besame Musho and To Know Him Is To Love Him. And you will notice that's 14 songs, so which one's yeah. missing, Richard? Well, I haven't been paying attention. I'm not surprised. It was Take Good Care of My Baby. Interesting, right? One of the ones that we think's the best. Yeah, and he, he held it back for the end. And the initial idea, his initial announcement, he said there was going to be eight singles. 
and I've just listed seven. So he was, I've heard stories, some people said he planned to do a one-sided record uh, or back up the other side with something else, obviously. Pete Best performing, I'm going to knock on your door. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, that would have done it. I'm going to knock on your head. As it turned out, he put out a Decagon album, and that was where the 15th song was available. Hmm. Selling point for the album, bonus track. Well, that's where things started to get complicated for Joe as well. Unfortunately, he had either given a cassette or lent somebody a cassette. It's, it's, I don't know how that cassette got out, but a cassette of these songs got out, and that's how you started getting like circuit records releases, and there was uh, the Abbey Road outtakes before Joe could even put out his own circuit records put out probably the best-looking package of the Decca audition tapes back in the day, and they even had phony liner notes written for it by Pedrozek and Castleman. Those guys wrote, like, a whole phony history of the Decca tapes as if they had actually been released on Decca as singles, and mm -hmm. that then EMI uh, chose to sign the Beatles. Of course, it was all phony. It was just a joke as part of this whole thing. But those were not Joe's records, and those were essentially rip-offs. Joe never attempted to do anything like this again. I, I think the experience was difficult. He really did it as a work of love, in a sense. I don't think he made like a ton of dough off of doing it. But that is how they really got out. Now, parallel to this, of course, in, I think, was it 75, there was that release that was purported to be the deck audition, a bootleg. On the cover of the vinyl record was a reproduction of the Mersey Beat front page from January 62, Beatles top pole. But inside it, when people played it, it wasn't the Decca audition. It was actually a kind of repackaging of Yellow Matter Custard, wasn't it? Which was a bootleg of some of the BBC sessions. Yeah, that was Dave Morell, okay, who was the A&R guy. He was very, very young at this stage. Yeah. And he used to hang around with Howard Smith. And he met uh, John by coming over to a, one of the shows where John and Yoko showed up on Howard Smith's. And what he did was to dub off the bootleg of Yellow Matter Custard onto a, a reel of tape, and he gave that to John. I don't know if any of us knew what it was. I remember when I first got Yellow Matter Custard, the bootleg, I thought there was studio outtakes. We didn't know about the BBC Yeah, sessions. exactly. I didn't have a clue what it was about. I just knew it was like, wow these weird recordings that the Beatles did. And it was crap quality as well. It was pretty bad. Um, you know, well, I should, actually, should I say really? It wasn't really bad. It, it got worse when they made bootlegs of the bootleg. That's when it got really oh, crappy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got a bootleg of the bootleg, I think, and it was pretty atrocious. Well, that's what happened with the, the Decca tapes as well, which is why they start warbling. John heard it and assumed that it was the Decca audition tape, and that caused enough doubt at the time yeah, that's right. Wasn't it like about 71 when you would have thought that, you know, the Lennon-McCartney relationship was at its lowest? Yeah, it was Christmas time. Yeah, it was Christmas time. John sent a kind of Christmas gift to Paul and to Linda saying, hey, listen, here's the Decca tape. Couldn't even remember their performances. I think that's one of those really important historic documents because, you know, you can see the, the actual note that he wrote. Yeah. Uh, it just proves that even when they were at their most bitter, that there was still a love there and... I remember uh, Victor Spinetti telling me that when John saw the UFO, the first person he called was Paul McCartney. So there was a love there. The bond was still there. And I guess he probably figured, here's the one guy that's going to be as excited about this as me. Yeah, more than George. 
Uh, yeah, definitely more than George, <laughs> I would think. And Ringo wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, and Ringo wasn't there, so he wouldn't have anything to do with him. And he's not talking to Pete. I don't think he ever spoke to Pete again. I asked Pete that once, and he said, no, after when you got sacked, he never spoke to John Lennon once again. He passed by him getting off a stage, I think he said. So it was like, who can I share this with? Paul. Yeah, and he did. And uh, that ended up getting copied, and it was in the EMI archive, also listed as the DECA audition tape. There's so many layers to why it's missing or was missing out of EMI. I know for a while, Jason B., one of the guys who helped obtain the tape uh, from the nefarious uh, EMI employee, he thought for a long time it was the Parlophone audition tape because that's the only thing that made sense to him. Yeah. Who would you want to believe more than somebody who was there? If John Lennon says that Yellow Matter Custard is the DECA audition tape, I would have believed him too. So Jason's theory was, nah, this must be the Parlophone thing. Why else would it be there? What a story, eh, all of this. It's a perfect story as well. It's got a happy ending because they don't get signed by Decca, which, as we've already discussed, wouldn't have been in their best interests. So they don't get signed by Decca, but we end up with the Decca audition. So we've got the best of both worlds. And I think it was a wave that had begun in 1974 with the 10th anniversary of the Beatles coming to America. You know, Capitol had had great success relaunching the Beach Boys. And they decided, hey, what would happen if we relaunched the Beatles? And um, it kind of started to build by 76 when you have wings coming over. I mean, it was a a tidal wave. And here we were again with Beatlesque records charting. You know, Paul had a big hit with Listen to What the Man Said. And it was like Beatles stuff was all over the place, all over again. And the rock and roll music that did very well and Got to Get You Into My Life was a big hit single that summer. So it was like the second wave of Beatlemania. And I think in many ways, certainly as a collector, I can tell you, I was so, so excited by these singles. And that kind of carried us up to when John died. And when John died, that was it. It was like no looking back. The Beatles were never going away after that. Why can't she sing? 
just for me Once upon a time That little girl was mine If I had been too I know she'd never be with you So take good care of my baby Be just as kind as you can be And if you should discover That you don't really love her Just send my baby back home Take care of my baby Be just as kind as you can be And if you should discover That you don't really love her Just send my baby back home to me Take good care of my baby Take good care of my baby Take good care of my baby The Beatles, Naked. Post production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. We went to London New Year's Day for our big audition at Decca. We thought it went well, but... Thank you, gentlemen. We appreciate you coming down. Don't tell me you didn't like them. I'm afraid I didn't. How is that possible? You see, Mr. Epstein... It's Epstein. Yes. As I was about to say, it is my job, Mr. Epstein, to feel the pulse of the record-buying public. And it's my sense that guitar bands, like these chaps, are simply on the way out. You are absolutely wrong. These boys are going to be bigger than Elvis. Come to Liverpool. See them perform. See how the audience is... Liverpool is not London, Mr Epstein. I know you have a very profitable situation up there. If I were you, sir, I would just tend to the hat. Well, I am not you, sir. And someday you are going to kick yourself for this decision. I hope the bastard kicks himself to death someday.